This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. Hi, I'm Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. The apocalyptic wildfires in the west coast of the United States have dominated headlines in recent weeks. Our guest on this episode is climate scientist Peter Kalmus from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the US. He is based in California and is speaking with us today on his own behalf. He will be sharing more about the global significance of the fires. Thanks, Peter, for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Peter, you know, California is all the way across the Pacific Ocean from us here in Singapore. So I was wondering if you could start off by setting the scene for us. What is the situation there like now? And are the fires still burning? Uh, yes, they are. Um, very much so. So a few weekends ago, we had an intense heat wave throughout the western United States. Here in southern California, in some areas, it surpassed 49 degrees Celsius of heat. And when you have that level of heat for a couple of days, you get wildfires because temperature heat wave is one of the main drivers of wildfires. So since the wildfires started all up and down the western United States, Many, many areas have been dealing with not only the fires themselves, but with extremely bad air quality, including Los Angeles. So my house is in kind of up in the foothills on the northern edge of the Los Angeles basin and right nestled kind of against the San Gabriel Mountains. And one of the worst fires, the Bobcat Fire, has been raging. That's the closest one to us. It's a few miles away from our house. And uh, when the wind blows from that fire, as it has been doing frequently over the last couple of weeks, the air quality gets extremely bad. In some areas, it's been you know, approaching smoking a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of the health impacts. In a few areas, it's been even worse than that. So it's been a challenge. So you've given us a sense of how bad the fires are this year. But compare the fires really to previous years. I, I understand the fires this year have basically gone way above any past records in terms of area burn, but also the fire season has still got months to go and these fires have started unusually early. Yeah, that's right, David. So the previous record for California was two years ago. And in 2018, we had the devastating fire that burned the town of Paradise and killed many people there. Uh, it was a devastating event. But even in 2018, which was the record for California for that time, about 1.7 million acres burned. This year, so far in 2020, we've already had around 3.6 million acres burned, so more than twice as much. And like you pointed out, we're, we still have months to go in the fire season. So traditionally, the fire season in California started in October, and it's been starting earlier because of global heating. And so we haven't even really gotten to the traditional start of fire season yet. And it's been going longer, too. So we might have three or four months of fire season left this year. So what are the main causes of these fires? I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, extreme heat. I guess there's also been prolonged drought. I guess there are man-made sort of causes. But help our readers sort of understand what's really driving these ever greater extremes of fires that are obviously affecting the U.S. West Coast, but also, I guess, areas like Australia, Siberia, and sadly, many others. Yeah, you don't have to overthink it too much. Uh, the main cause is just heat. So as the planet gets hotter, as uh, you get these more and more frequent and intense heat waves, that those very high air temperatures act like a giant sponge that just sucks all the water out of the vegetation and the soil and the fuels. 
which makes them burn much easier. So it makes them ignite more easily. And when they do ignite, they can burn much more easily, more, more quickly, get out of control more quickly and spread much more quickly. There's other compounding synergistic effects that make them even worse. So for example, in mountainous regions around the world, we're seeing earlier snowmelts. So snow is melting earlier in the year, which means that the fuel has more time to dry out. So it's just, you know, you have a longer summer season, which can lead to worsening fires. In many areas, you also have trees that are getting more stressed by heat and drought. So drought's another factor that can dry out fuel in the long term. So you're getting drier fuel, including even the largest pieces of fuel. And then on top of all of this, you have trees that are more stressed by both drought and heat. So these are conditions for which the forests haven't evolved for. And that makes them more susceptible to, to diseases and insect infestations such as beetles, which themselves are becoming, populations are becoming larger due to milder winters. So, you know, you have all of these various effects of global heating, which are all basically pointing in the same direction, which is different conditions, which these forest ecosystems have not evolved for. And so I think what we're seeing in real time is many of these forest ecosystems changing into some other kind of ecosystem because they can burn. And if it wasn't for global heating, you know, if precipitation was normal and temperatures were normal and these other conditions were normal, they would be able to recover. But because we're on this escalator towards hotter temperatures and all of these effects that I mentioned are just getting stronger, it's very hard for the forest ecosystem to recover after a fire. And even if it does, it's just going, the conditions for burning will just get worse in the future. So that's quite a frightening future for anybody to face. And this is obviously not just California. So what do you think this crisis means then for the rest of the world, even for countries far away from areas that are prone to fires? Well, climate and ecological breakdown is such a complicated predicament and it has so many facets. So heat waves, wildfire and bad air quality is just one facet of this crisis. You know, other regions, for example, the southeastern United States are seeing stronger and deadlier hurricanes. So you have a hotter ocean, which makes the storm stronger. You have changes in weather patterns in the jet stream, which can cause them to have heavier rain and could cause them to sit over a city for a longer time. On top of that, you have sea level rise, which makes the storm surge worse. And this is just the beginning. You also have areas where agriculture is becoming more difficult, where the strain on the water supply is becoming more difficult, you know, and where you're seeing populations that increasingly, especially near the equator, that can't deal with the heat. Towards the end of the century, we might have humid heat waves that make it hard for the human body to actually maintain and regulate its temperature. So heat exhaustion in those regions and heat stroke might become more common. At the same time with water and agricultural stresses, many of those people in, uh, in the global south near the equator might need to move away from those areas, which could obviously put a massive strain on geopolitics. So this predicament is not something that's, in my opinion, that's just limited to certain regions of the planet, especially through our globally interconnected, complex civilizational systems, such as infrastructure and trade and economic systems and transportation and water and food and especially geopolitics. You know, what happens in one region of the planet now, it does not stay there. And that's why I feel that this is increasingly with every year that passes, maybe even with every day that passes at this point, it's becoming increasingly clear, I think, to me and many other people and not just experts that this is a life or death emergency 
and should be of a very high prior- priority for humanity to address at this point. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now back to our conversation with climate scientist Peter Kalmus on what the wildfires in California could mean for the rest of the world, including Singapore. So Peter, you mentioned earlier that global heating was one of the main drivers of the wildfires and many other impacts around the world. But maybe you could give us a bit of a climate change 101 here. How do growing amounts of emissions in the atmosphere affect the incidence of these events? Absolutely. So first of all, it's important for everyone to realize that these impacts that we're seeing and the global heating that's causing these impacts is 100% caused by humans. You know, scientists have looked at the sun, they've looked at volcanic emissions, they've looked at other things, and there's no other explanation. So what happens is when we burn fossil fuels, which is the main cause of what's happening right now, carbon dioxide is produced. And this is a nonlinear molecule with three atoms. And that makes it able to interact with infrared radiation. So an infrared photon can hit one of these CO2 molecules and make it start to vibrate. The reason that this is important is the planet takes in a huge amount of energy through sunlight, which is uh, in the visible spectrum, which is why we, you know, our eyes are tuned to the visible spectrum. And then for the planet not to heat up, it has to emit the same amount of radiation into space. And the way it does that is through infrared radiation, which is at a much lower frequency. So we can see through carbon dioxide, there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it's clear to visible light. So it lets that sunlight come in. But when it absorbs the infrared radiation from the surface of the planet, which is trying to stream out into space, more of that outgoing radiation is absorbed by these additional CO2 molecules, which then eventually re-radiate it in all directions. So some of that energy that would have gone into space is now being redirected back down to the surface. And so the surface has to be hotter in order for the same amount of infrared radiation to escape into space. And you end up with a planet that reaches a new equilibrium and an energy balance at a hotter temperature. So that's basically how it works. So it's, it's fundamental physics, which is why um, scientists can speak with such certainty about if we continue burning fossil fuels and we continue exponentially increasing the CO2 that's in our atmosphere, we know with, I would say, a perfect degree of certainty that the planet will continue getting hotter, which means that all of these impacts that we've been discussing will get worse. And then one other thing that's very important to understand about this predicament, and which I don't think the public understands well enough, is that these processes, the carbon dioxide will stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. So some of it will be up there thousands and even tens of thousands of years from now which makes a lot of the impacts that we're experiencing effectively permanent on any timescales that are relevant to human civilization. And then it's even slightly worse than that because this global heating is one of the main drivers of biodiversity loss. And what many biologists and ecologists and other scientists feel is a sixth mass extinction event on the planet. And for the timescale for the recovery of that biodiversity is actually up to 10 million years in the future. So that's why um, you know, it's the decisions humanity makes in the next few years could have consequences for life on this planet for millions of years, which is remarkable. And to me, I think that what that says to me is that humanity is, is at a very special time right now in its history as a species. And 
it's time for us to really take a hard look at how we live on this planet and how we interact with the other species on this planet and how we think about our needs versus our wants and you know what kind of a planet we want to leave, not just for our children or our grandchildren, but really for you know the next few thousand human generations. So it's highly consequential. And, and that's why I think the public has to become aware that this isn't just an issue like many other issues that we're facing. This is something bigger, you know, maybe more cosmic. I think of our planet uh, viewed from other planets, viewed from the Voyager spacecraft, the pale blue dot that Carl Sagan used to speak of. This is a tiny little rocky sphere orbiting around the sun. It's still the only place in the universe we know that has life. And it turns out that the life support systems on this incredibly beautiful, wonderful spaceship that we're all sharing together, uh, not just with each other, but with all the other plants and animals and life on this planet, those life support systems turn out to be more fragile than I think we ever imagined. So a lot of things are going to have to change over the next few years. And I, I think it's going to be, a, it's, there's going to be some turbulence, I think. So things are likely to get a little bit worse, judging by current events <laughs> and certainly the accelerating yes. um, severity of events. But just in terms of, you know, like fires in Australia and particularly here in Southeast Asia, where we often experience bouts of extreme smoke or haze, as it's called here, from, uh, from forest fires in Indonesia. Most of those fires are caused by land clearing for agriculture, of course. But I think climate change is likely to make those fires and the droughts that are often behind them much worse. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about the growing threat from fires, perhaps in this part of the region. Well, uh, worldwide global heating, which is now at between one degree Celsius and 1.2 degrees Celsius, hotter than it ought to be, hotter than it would be if we hadn't been burning fossil fuels over the last couple of hundred years. This global heating has made heat waves more than extreme heat more than three times as frequent as they were in the 1960s. So that's again, that's the primary driver of fires worldwide. It's also getting easier and easier to attribute individual heat waves to global heating. For example, uh, Siberia's heat wave earlier this year was made 600 times more likely because of climate change. Europe's heat wave in 2019 was made up to 100 times more likely. So this is the main driver of fires worldwide. By mid-century, burned areas in, the, in Western North America could be up to a factor of six uh, larger than they are today. And uh, you know that trend won't be exactly the same in different parts of the world, but areas that are already prone to wildfires are likely to experience worsening wildfires. So Peter, when we were discussing earlier, you really made the point that this crisis, this accelerating crisis is not something that's caused by somebody else, it's caused by us. And that in one sense also gives you hope because that means that we also have the means to tackle it if we want to. So maybe just briefly address that, just, just to help really bring home that point to readers. And, and why these fires are such a manifestation of, of this growing crisis. Yeah, so expect more of these climate-related catastrophes in the future. Expect them all to get more frequent and more severe. But also realize that this crisis is 100% human-caused, which means that if we choose to, collectively, we can stop it. So it's no matter what we do at this point, even if there was some miraculous way that we could stop burning fossil fuels today, it would still get worse for several decades. But I think if we come together as a species across national boundaries, um, across economic classes, if we learn to live with each other and to share things more equitably, to share wealth and opportunity and justice and natural resources more equitably on this planet, we can still stave off the worst of what might come. And I think that 
if the public wakes up through the grassroots climate movement, which is, I think, the only way out of this, is we need a billion climate activists. We need everyone listening and to look deep in themselves and think how they can uniquely contribute to waking up all of their friends and neighbors and making this movement stronger. If we do that and we start to force policymakers to actually take massive, rapid action that causes these systems to change, our energy systems and transportation systems and so on, we might enter a very new phase where we see the emissions start going down and different nations basically start to compete in their excitement and see who can reduce their emissions fastest. And even while these disasters get worse, I think we'll start to feel more optimistic as a species and we'll feel more gratitude for what we have on this planet. And to me, that's what gives me hope is this idea that we still can stop this. And once we do, once we actually see things start to change, we won't just be talking about hope anymore. We'll actually be experiencing it. So Peter, in short, individual action is important because it would send a signal to governments and institutions and companies to effect the systemic change that we need to actually stop this global heating? I strongly agree with that statement. You know, if you look at one of the main uh, sparks behind this really remarkable increase in um, the grassroots climate movement between 2018 and now. Greta Thunberg took the so-called individual action of um, school strike for climate. And she's often made the point that no one is too small to affect change. And so individual change isn't necessarily just flying less or eating less meat or riding your bicycle more, even though those are all very good things. It's also getting involved politically, you know, and getting involved in your community and pushing for change and speaking at the public library and raising awareness and maybe taking some direct action. So there's many things that any of us can do as individuals. Most important things we can do as individuals is actually to join groups so that we're not individuals anymore and we can lend our voices to the voices of others speaking in unison and really helping each other wake up. I really think it's going to take a sort of a very strong shift in public awareness, a realization by the public that this is a life or death emergency. That's what's going to drive policy change. And policy change is the thing that's going to change these systems that have evolved to burn fossil fuels and have evolved in a world that wasn't two degrees Celsius warmer, for example, than it was supposed to be. So in order to change those social norms and those very entrenched infrastructures and systems, we're going to need a very powerful grassroots movement that can actually, for example, go up against the fossil fuel corporations in some cases, policymakers and governments that are sort of in the pocket of those fossil fuel corporations. So thank you, Peter, for speaking with us today. Thank you. For more on climate change, do check out the stories in The Straits Times. That's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.